This episode is sponsored by NOAA, an app I listen to regularly. The first 100 people to visit newsoveraudio.com forward slash media tribe will get a week free to listen to articles from The Economist, Bloomberg and The Financial Times plus 50% off. Welcome to Media Tribe, the podcast that's on a mission to restore faith in journalism. I'm Shona Kinnair, an award-winning journalist with over 10 years of experience working for some of the biggest news outlets in the industry. Every week, I'm going to introduce you to some of the world's most respected journalists, filmmakers and media executives, and you're going to hear the story behind the storyteller. You'll get a sense of the integrity and hard graft that's involved in journalism, and hopefully you'll go away feeling that this craft is worth valuing. I had a colleague say to me, well, you know, it's so good we got through the election without any violence. And I said, yeah, that's just actually not true. We had scattered acts of spectacular and horrific violence, you know, in Olympia, Washington, two weeks in a row in front of the state house, People were shot in protests between leftists and right groups. And I really do not think that the scale of the political violence that occurred before the election has even been grappled with. My guest today is investigative reporter with ProPublica, AC Thompson. AC, you are so welcome to the Media Tribe podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on. Uh, You are my first ProPublica journalist, which is an honour. So do you want to tell our audience a little bit about how you got into journalism, AC? Absolutely. So I grew up in um, the suburbs of Washington, D.C., in my first job after high school, I went to work as a magazine printer and I got bored of that really quickly and started trying to figure out how to do something else in my life. And that led to, I did work as a security guard. I was a bicycle messenger. I was a laboratory test subject for experimental drugs. I did a lot of different things. Seriously? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Seriously. What kind of experimental drugs? Yeah, yeah. So I did um, I did one for a bone strengthener for people with osteoporosis. I did one for a uh, sedative. And I did another one. I can't remember the medication. The sedative, like, uh, it really made me sleepy. But some of the people in our control group, it made them really aggressive. And one guy tried to put another guy, throw another guy out the window of the hospital. And so the sheriffs had to come take him away. Okay. So this is not uh, the most uh, conventional career path, which I'm obviously loving AC. So crack on. So eventually I I wound up in San Francisco. I moved to the Bay area in Northern California. And I had a friend that introduced me. I was in my early, very early twenties. And I had a friend who introduced me to a program for people in their teens and 20s who wanted to get into journalism. And it was called Youth Outlook. And they published a a newspaper and a website and had a radio show and all this stuff. And so I joined that program. It was a nonprofit. And the people there taught me how to write and how to punctuate a sentence and how to capitalize a sentence and the basics of grammar. And that was really my introduction. And in a few years, I got a staff job at one of the alternative weeklies in San Francisco. That was kind of it. I then went to another weekly. I freelanced. I started making films. I wound up at ProPublica. So a kind of different trajectory, but it was, it was really cool. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything about it. 
Well, I think that's actually so awesome to hear because it's 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 so refreshing, I guess, to hear that there are people in journalism with non-conventional backgrounds and, you know, had these circuitous roots into journalism, which we, what I've discovered, actually, most of my guests have. Um, so it's really, really refreshing to hear that. And just in case our audience don't know what ProPublica is, uh, it is an independent, non-profit journalism body that makes amazing journalism in public interest. Right, right. And so I joined in 2008 when the company was just starting. And at that time, it was like 40 or 50 of us in an office in the financial district in New York City. And it was sort of a question of, well, you know, we are trying to figure out what to do as legacy media disintegrates what to do as investigative reporting goes away because that's the most expensive thing to do in journalism and how can we fill that void and all my colleagues and i were basically people who had fled legacy print media and were now trying to figure it out now i think we're about at 180 people and so you know about 13 years later and we are um really still trying to <laughs> figure it out in some ways and what what comes next and, and what we should be doing. But it's great to work with such an amazing band of people that don't feel like they have to do what came before in journalism, that they can always try something new and develop something new. And particularly in terms of partnering with other media organizations, doing distributed reporting, doing team reporting, doing multi-platform reporting. And that's been a, a really exciting thing. Yeah. And I think for me, I always look at ProPublica and think of impact, actually. Everything you guys do genuinely leads to impact, whether it's legislation change or or, or what have you. And that's something that I'm really keen on as well. Um, so it's, a, it's an amazing outlet. If, if you don't know what it is, certainly go and follow it and, and go and follow your work, AC. And do you want to talk to our audience then about your particular beat? And I'm going to kind of give you the headline, Documenting Hate, and you can take it from there, AC. Although I, I probably should, I should probably ask you my next question, which is which project or story you're most proud of? And I'm sure it's it will fall under that headline at least. You, you know, I, I'm not, I, I'm maybe different than other journalists. I'm not proud of anything that I did, honestly. Like to me, I, all I see is the flaws and the problems and the things I could have done better. So that's um, that's me. I I can think of things that, I can think of teams that I worked with that I really liked working with those people. And I can think of places that I went and interviews we did that I was really happy with or research. But yeah, I'm not satisfied. I'm not, a, I don't like in my work, I'm not going to be, a, I'm not going to be satisfied. For me, this is art as well as compiling of facts and the dispensation of facts. It's art and I'm never happy with the art that I create. So. Well, I can imagine that's why you're a perfectionist and it's so timely for us to talk, AC, about documenting hate and, and your coverage of white supremacy over years now, which is, it's just so timely, the week that's in it. And I should date our interview and say it's it, it's inauguration day. Um, so we're kind of post-insurrection. But if, if, if you could kind of delve into your beat. So here here's the thing. The story is that what I can say about things that I'm happy about with work that I do is when it has an impact. And there's a clear through line in my work going back 20 years that it overwhelmingly is about telling stories from street level 
it's overwhelmingly telling stories about people who do not have power and about how those in power stomp on them and what happens as that happens. So, you know, one of the early projects I did at ProPublica was about police shootings and a, a string of hate crimes in New Orleans in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And that led to a federal hate crimes prosecution. It led to prosecution, criminal prosecutions against a bunch of New Orleans cops. It led to the complete remaking of the New Orleans Police Department. And honestly, that was the first time uh, that I really started thinking about the hate crimes framework and thinking about what that body of law really could do or not do. And in more recent years, in the Trump years, I've been focused on white supremacist extremists and anti-government extremists. And that work has led to the prosecution of at least nine white, white supremacists, either through court martial or federal criminal cases. And it's really been um, sort of expanding on, on the earlier work that I had done and sort of turning the earlier tools that I'd had to us in a slightly different direction. And and, and did, did you find, you know, come 2016, when, when now ex-president Trump came to power, did you find that that particular beat changed? Or did you, is that maybe when you decided to look more closely at white supremacy when Trump came to power? Yeah, I mean, I had done reporting from Europe about neo-Nazis back in the 90s, right? And I had done the hate crimes reporting, but I hadn't been deep on this beat. And in the fall of 2016, I was working on an epic project about court martials. And myself and a colleague of mine were going to do this really great project and series about the military justice system. And it was going to be awesome. And we were very excited about it. And we had amazing data. And when the election happened, people that I work with said, that feels somewhat irrelevant now and somewhat, it seems like a kind of boutique investigative journalism project at a moment when there's a lot of other concerns and a lot of other issues uh, at the fore. And I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is my boss. And he was very, very gentle about it. This was Joe Sexton. And he was um, said, I'm not telling you to do this, but if you want to, what would you do in the stead of that project that you've devoted many months to? And I said, well, I've been monitoring social media and looking at what's out there for months and months now. And there's this whole resurgence of activism that's so much like what was happening in the late 80s and early 90s, this white supremacist, white extremist activism. And I see all the same tropes and all the same sort of characters and the same books and texts coming up. And I feel like we should be doing something about that. And I said, I don't know that we can prove it at this moment, but it seems that we are seeing an increase in hate violence and bias incidents, and that's something we should be tracking. And so that's really what, what happened. And it turned out that sort of hunch wasn't that correct. That those, and the data did end up proving that out, that those sorts of incidents were increasing. And it turned out for sure that Trump had been a catalyst for all these white extremist groups that had disappeared and this white extremist movement that had basically gone 
basically gone away. So, so again, for context, um, this would have been pre-Charlottesville and, and pre the, the attack in Pittsburgh on the Jewish synagogue as well. Um, so, so you did come to this beat quite early in some ways, I would say, AC. Right, right. And you didn't have to be an oracle to, to see that there was this current and this sort of subculture that was rising up out there. But um, I think it was helpful if you had maybe some background in these kinds of, in this kind of thinking, in this kind of world to make some sense of it. And to be sure, the white supremacist and extremist movements of the Trump era are deeply different than the ones that I had been more familiar with that preceded them. But there were a lot of commonalities. One of the things that was massively different is that if you were to look back to the Tim McVeigh time period, the 90s, or if you were to look back to the height of sort of David Duke's influence in the, the late 80s into the 90s, it was really hard to circulate information and to disseminate information if you were a white supremacist or a militia member or an anti-government extremist. And when you flash forward to 2015, 2016, to the Trump era, it was incredibly easy. It was incredibly easy. And the most extreme organizations in the world were taking advantage of the biggest media platforms out there run by the biggest companies to generate massive audiences that their predecessors would have been totally jealous of. Yeah. So so is there, do you feel then, AC, I mean, back in the 90s, you know, you referred to Tim McVeigh and, and of course, David Duke. Was there a sense that back then it was very much kind of lone wolf behavior and, and kind of these cells that existed across the country, but maybe wasn't too organized? And now it's certainly changed. Well, it feels and looks like that um, from what we see that saw in the last few weeks. I think it's always been organized. It's always been thoughtful in many ways, honestly, like that That a lot of the people that have been involved in these movements, they get uh, stereotyped as idiots, they get stereotyped as backward rednecks. And I think that's generally not right. I think they're generally quite often quite thoughtful, quite smart people, if massively misguided. But I would say like the 80s and 90s, you had very tight and very organized networks of people and organizations that met with each other, that supported each other, that there was a terrorist organization called The Order that robbed banks and armored cars and then distributed that money to their allies throughout the white power movement. There was the use of something called Liberty Net, which was an early BBS and an early sort of incarnation of the internet. And so there was a lot of organization, I would say, at that time. At the same time, there was a sort of intelligence to the movement that they developed these ideas that came out of guerrilla struggle, came out of urban terrorism, came out of a lot of different political currents. And they said, hey, this is our movement. This is our subculture. This is our community. You don't have to do an action as a member of a big militia or as a member of an organized group or at the command of somebody in a group. You can go out as an individual or in coordination with two or three trusted allies 
and do acts of significant terrorism. And we, in fact, we encourage you to. And that's the whole theory of, of leaderless resistance or small cell terrorism. And in that way, you can uh, commit acts of spectacular violence and you're much more likely to get away with it. So this was a sort of idea that circulated through the community, through the broader movement and was widely adopted. So when we think about the so-called lone wolves, they may act individually, they may act with a couple of allies, but really they're part of this much broader community and movement. And if those ideas hadn't circulated to them from that broader community and movement, they would not have done the things they did, you know. And and so what we're seeing today, let's say, AC, you know, with the various groups, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and what have you, what we what we saw during the insurrection. Do you feel that that again is is all quite organized? I feel like that, you know, they are all different groups, but I'm assuming they're all kind of aligned with the same ideology that, you know, the white race is in danger and and that President of Trump, of course, gave them hope, or at least maybe gave them a sense that white supremacy could enter the mainstream. Is that your sense too? My belief is that in the Trump era, even more so than in previous eras, what you have is a spectrum of uh, extremist ideology and extremist organizing tactics. And that you could put the, you could make a spectrum and it would go something like this. On one side of the spectrum, you have full on neo-Nazi terrorists. And we've seen them in recent years who say, we're not going to do political struggle. We're not going to do political organizing. We're just going to bomb stuff and kill people. And many of them have been wrapped up by the feds. You would move over to, to sort of open white nationalist, open white supremacist groups who are organizing publicly. You would move from there to extreme anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim groups. You would move from there to the conspiracy theorists. You would move from there to militia members and uh, street fighting, ultra-nationalists like the Proud Boys. And then perhaps you keep moving and you would get to the, the Boogaloo Boys who are generally libertarians, generally not Trumpist, but believe absolutely in the in basically overthrow the government in the very near future and are happy to work with Trumpists or anyone else to advance that agenda. So I think there's a lot of different ideological niches. Some of these people overlap. So you may have somebody who's an ultra-nationalist street fighter who is also a QAnon conspiracy theorist buff, who also sometimes hangs out with militia people. But there's definitely different, uh, a lot of different factions. And I think what's happened since Charlottesville, that Charlottesville en ends up sort of being the apotheosis or the apex of the open white supremacist movement. And what happens in the aftermath is you get a lot of those people reconstituting themselves as not quite so obviously racist organizers and activists. And a lot of them join groups that you could call like multi-ethnic or multicultural fascist type groups or ultra-nationalist groups. So the organizing principle moves away from being about the white race and it ends up being about nativism, so-called traditional male, female, male roles, anti-LGBTQ, 
values and all this sort of other stuff. And these are the kind of people that'll call themselves the right wing death squads, or they'll wear t-shirts that celebrate Pinochet, the fascist dictator of Chile. And in these sort of cases, the main scapegoat is not necessarily people of color, but people perceived to be sympathetic to communists or to be communist dupes. And that would basically include the entire Democratic Party and anybody with mildly progressive values. So I think that's what's changed in a lot of ways, too, is this sort of the scapegoat moving from being any, any people of color to being ideological and being people who are perceived to be pro-communist, socialist, leftist. You know, these are the kind of people that play songs on their parlor channel that'll say things like, that'll talk about going up in a helicopter and throwing the Democrats and the socialists out of the helicopter. Wow. Well, I, I mean, it, it's complex, isn't it? And and just to add more complexity to the equation, I, I'm very interested in the reporting you did about, you know, how some of these people were formerly in the military or how some even just as of a few weeks ago, you know, the, the, I believe police officers were involved in the insurrection. Can you kind of talk to us, AC, about, about that and, and why that is? You know, where is the crossover, I guess? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, in the past, I think I a couple years ago, I would say that my bigger concern would be with the military and with sort of the infiltration of the military by white supremacist and anti-government and white extremist groups. Um, recent things have made me rethink that. <laughs> um, and so I you know, honestly, there's very little scholarship and research done on the penetration of law enforcement in modern times by white extremist ideology and white extremist groups. Very little. Um, but I think what we have found from the anecdotal reports and the spot news reports and what's come out after the Capitol is there should be a lot of concern about the compromise of law enforcement from those groups. Now, I still think we're going to see a lot more military people implicated in that in those movements in those scenes and i'm working on a story about just that and i think the problem is larger than people imagine but also the stakes in both cases are higher than with the average person because if you're dealing with someone with combat training tim mcveigh was a combat soldier who left the military if you're dealing with someone who wields a gun for their job and is a public safety officer, a police officer, a correctionals officer who is responsible for people, has people's lives in their, literally in their hands, and they're a subscriber to one of these ideologies, the, the stakes are just a lot higher. The Media Tribe podcast is brought to you by NOAA, an app that helps you know more about news that matters. NOAA is obsessed with quality journalism and lets you listen to important, curated audio articles from world-class publishers like The Independent, Business Insider and many more. Their mission is to help listeners like you understand the big issues, get multiple perspectives and go beyond breaking news. The first 100 Media Tribe listeners to visit newsoveraudio.com forward slash Media Tribe will get one week free plus 50% off thereafter. That's newsoveraudio.com forward slash Media Tribe, or if it's easier, simply hit the link in the show notes.
Thank you to everyone who has subscribed to Noah so far. Not only are you supporting quality journalism, but you're also helping me bring you more Media Tribe episodes like this one. Right, back to AC. So these people then, I mean, they're anti-government and as you say, have a military background. It, like it, And it feels, that's, it feels like that's where we are right now, especially again in light of recent events. Obviously, a good portion of the GOP have kind of turned their backs on backing Trump and everything he stood for. Do you feel like it's potentially even we're entering even a more dangerous period? Right, right. There's a, a couple of things to consider, I think. And one is I, I had a, a colleague say to me, well, you know, it's it's so good we got through the election without any any violence. And I said, yeah, that's just actually not true. That's just not true. Um, what it is, is that we had low level scattered acts of spectacular and horrific violence that occurred for weeks and weeks and weeks leading up to the election. And I don't think people really understood the significance of that. And I'm talking about, you know, in Olympia, Washington, two weeks in a row in front of the state house, people were shot in protests between leftists and right groups. I'm talking about these incidents where people are driving cars into one another, where people are attacking each other with bats and boards and flagpoles in major American cities. And I really do not think that the scale of the political violence that occurred before the election has even been grappled with. And I think that's part of why you saw the Capitol Police completely surprised by what happened on January 6th. I think it's this lack of knowledge of the broader picture. But looking forward, the concern that I had is when we were on the campaign trail interviewing um, Trump supporters at Trump rallies where he was coming to speak, there was some very widespread feeling that the only way Trump could possibly lose the election is if there was some kind of fraud, if there was some kind of corruption, 75 million people voted for Donald Trump. When you look at the polls, there's a very significant number of them who are absolutely convinced that the election was fraudulent, that very bad things happened that led to the ouster of their leader, that there was just, there was rampant corruption and misconduct. And so many of these people are acting out of what they see as great selflessness and great heroism with the facts that they have and the beliefs that they have that have been pop, you know, propped up by One America News. They've been propped up by Newsmax. They've been propped up at times by Fox. And they've been propped up by a whole constellation of far-right websites, blogs, and social media posts. You know, I was interviewing a Proud Boy a few days ago, and he said, no, I don't listen to Fox. I get my news from Newsmax. That's the only source I trust now. And that was basically because Newsmax was one of the news outlets that had continued to parrot these insane claims about voter fraud and corruption in the election. That's the sort of population that you have to be concerned about taking dramatic violent action that can lead to mass casualties. And you have to be worried about those acts of terrorism, not today, not tomorrow, but going forward for quite some time. And I don't want to be paranoid. I don't want to be a Cassandra and tell everyone that that the sky is falling and 
bad, bad things are going to happen forever. But I think you have to just be thoughtful, like do the math. It's pretty simple. 75 million people that to think that a significant number of them may have been radicalized by the events of the past year. That's not crazy talk. That's just pure logic. Well, I think you're so right. This story is certainly not going away. And, and you know, even back to Charlottesville in obviously 2017, it I remember reading at the time that off the back of that attack, when that poor girl Heather was was killed by by, by the driver, um, that that they were able to recruit more people off the back of that attack. I mean, that just blew my mind. It, it, I mean, it's incredibly depressing, isn't it, AC? And as you say, yeah, it, it, again, that's why we need to keep doing the journalism. So, so well done you. Thank you. Thank you. And it's, you know, we may see another evolution. We may see that there's such pushback to what happened at the Capitol that this is far right movements are chopped up and dis, you know, basically disintegrated going forward. Or we may see that there is this underlying current of rage and anger that manifests itself in dramatic, spectacular violence going forward. It's not clear to me, but I think you have to be at least aware of that possibility. And you have to think about the sort of broader issues about how bogus propagandistic information actually does have an impact and it actually does find an audience and resonate often with people who are somewhat not well to begin with. Well, I couldn't agree more. Well, moving on to potentially a lighter note, um, the final question, AC, is something I ask all my guests. But is there a moment in your career that has been rather crazy that you'd like to delve into that has never been told before? I'm sure you've uh, great tales there that you might want to divulge. This is so this was a thing that happened while we were making um, one of the documenting hate films. And we had just gone with a camera crew to the home of a member of this white supremacist gang. And we had footage of this guy participating in the violence in Charlottesville and at other white power rallies. And we roll up on him. We had been waiting in the car for like two hours. Everyone had to pee really badly. We thought we might have to like pull, like drop the stake out so somebody could go somewhere and go to the bathroom and finally he shows up and like you know we go up on him on cameras we're like hey you know you're a member of this white power gang you were in charlottesville etc cetera, etc cetera. like how do you feel about that you're on camera and by the way you work for northrop grumman the military contractor how do they know you're in a white power gang and the guy gets in his car and he takes off and my director rick rowley says to me hey that was great but it, it just wasn't enough like why don't we call him now and see if he'll meet us at this cafe and do a sit down interview? So like, can you just call him? You have his number. And I, I say, Rick, he is a member of a white power gang that beats people down for a, that's what they do. Their leader stabbed somebody six times and went to prison for it. We just lost him his job. Do you think like if we call him and say, meet us at the Starbucks on the corner that he's going to show up by himself and we'll have a nice conversation we can videotape? I was like, no, we're going to get our asses kicked. Like, no, we're not doing that. Absolutely not doing that. I, I should also say that um, there have been moments when we've interviewed Nazi types and Rick has said to me, oh, I'm so disappointed with this. Like, you look scarier than those Nazis. I, I was like really hoping that they would like punch you or something, but you you looked more intimidating than they did. So I, 
the, I don't know about this scene. And so he's definitely a person who's trying to, no one knows he's trying to get me harmed at every turn. At every turn. That is so funny. I can I can definitely relate because when you get back to an edit suite, people will always ask you, how come you didn't get that scene with the lot? You know, why, why didn't the neo-Nazi sit down for his flat white at Starbucks? I don't, I, you know, I don't understand. But that is classic television. But all of those series, if you're based in the US, you can, how many are there in Documenting Hate and PBS Frontline? So we did, we did two hours um, and one's called Documenting Hate Charlottesville and the other one's called Documenting Hate New America Nazis. And this sort of the film we're working on now is in some ways a spiritual successor to that about the the current far right movements. Fantastic. Well, we will link to those in in this podcast um, on social media. Um, AC, listen, thanks a million for coming on on the show. It's it's really great to get that level of context about wh- white supremacy here here and what's happened, uh, especially from somebody like you who's been really looking at these people for many as a year. So we really appreciate it, AC. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much. And I apologize for rambling on like like a maniac, um, but thank you. It's been great chatting. If you like what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, that's very good news because I'm going to be dropping new shows every week and every month on my new Media Tribe Spotlight series. Also, if you haven't already, make sure to take a listen to previous shows with some legendary folk in the industry. And as ever, please, please, please do leave me a rating and review as it really does help other people find this podcast. Finally, if you do have any guest suggestions, drop me a note on Twitter. I'm at Shauna with a GH or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram. And again, that's with the GH. Right, that's it. See you soon. This episode was edited by Ryan Ferguson.